Okay, take your Bibles and join me in Acts chapter 18, please. Acts chapter 18. Let me also share one more announcement. Steve gave it to me. I wrote it down. I still didn't make it. <laughs> um, if you gave money to Rosemont in the past year uh, and you need uh, a tax record of that, your statement is on the table, the resource table at the rear of the auditorium. So stop by there uh, today or, or next week and get that so you can get busy on, on your taxes as soon as possible. Okay, Acts chapter 18, uh, join me in a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive into our fourth uh, portrait of faith. Well, Father, um, the song we just sang, is it's a hard one to sing honestly. Uh, pretty song, um, flows well. We like to sing it, but if we stop to think about what we were singing, whatever you bring into our life is right, so I leave it all to you. It's hard when we're going through trials. It's easy when things are easy. But when things get hard and we, we have to uh, live through afflictions and pain and suffering and loss, the unknown out ahead of us, it would be harder to sing that song honestly. It's just another of many reasons that we come to your word. Because over and over and over again, we need to be reminded that not only are you sovereign, but you are right and you are good. So whatever you allow, whatever you cause in the life of your children, it's right and it's good. We may not understand it. Often we don't. We may never have the explanation for why you took us down this particular road. But James says we're to count it all joy because we know what you're doing. We know that you have promised that you're working it together for our good. So, Father, thank you for music that reminds us of these truths and, and music that helps us to express it to you. Um, it's, it's a form of worship to say to you, whatever you give me is right, and it's, it's what I want. Fathers, we look into the life of, of, of our character this morning, our characters this morning. I, I pray that as we look, as we read, as we listen, as we think, as we learn, that you will reveal to us things in our own life by comparison. Things that are on track, things that are good and right, things that are truly worshipful, things that are truly obedient, but at the same time, maybe things that, that aren't where they need to be, not where you deserve for them to be. As Len prayed just a little bit ago, you deserve everything from us. Your son has earned everything from us. We're supposed to honor him as we honor you. If we don't, we're not honoring you. And so as we look at these characters this morning, I pray that you would show us what that honor looks like, the good parts of it. What does it look like to be obedient for the right reasons? What does it look like to be all in? Chips pushed to the middle of the table and we risk it all for you. What's it look like? Show us this morning. And I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts to, to do something. If we see that things aren't right, if we see that changes should be made, then I pray that he will push us to make those changes. Not Again, not begrudgingly, not out of fear, um, but because we want to, because Christ deserves it. So use me in that process however you want to. Give, give your folks the ability to listen attentively this morning without distraction. Then have your way with us. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you ever felt incompetent to do something that you were asked to do or expected to do? Shows up in a lot of different ways. Maybe it was someone gave you a job and you took the job because the money was good. But once you started doing the job, you realized, I have no idea what I'm doing here. Or maybe a boss gave you a project to do or to lead on your job and, and you felt the same way. Maybe it was in sports. You were put in a game at a very crucial period near the end of the game, and the coach puts you in expecting you to perform in a clutch situation, and you, you just didn't really know what you were supposed to be doing out there at the moment. Maybe you're in, you're, you were in a relationship, and certain things were expected of you in that relationship with the other person, and, and you just didn't know how to give what was expected of you. Um, that's how we Christians feel sometimes right? 
The more we see of Christ, the more we see he deserves from us. And we want to give him all that he deserves. I have no doubt about any of you here this morning who are his. When you see that he deserves something, you want to give it to him, but we really struggle to do it, don't we? There's lots of reasons for that. Outside of us, there are constant pressures and offers for us to give it to something else. You know, love this. Be obsessed with that. Pour yourself into this. There's outside of us, I mean, constant influence and pressure and offers to be able to do that. It's not just outside of us. Inside of us, we have that selfish old nature that's always telling us, love yourself. Do it for yourself. Make yourself first and foremost. Go get what you can get for you. So that's going on on the inside all the time. So even when we try to live for Christ, we're kind of like kindergartners trying to color within the lines. And maybe you were perfect at it. I don't know. I wasn't. But it rarely looks perfect, that's for sure. So we need a lot of help with this. Not so much with the motivation part of it as with the execution part of it. How to do it. How to actually pull it off. And so for that help, we've been looking at the lives of some biblical characters. None of them perfect. All of them struggling just like us. But these characters managed somehow to live out their faith with some actions that were worthy of Christ. That's why we're looking at them. What can we learn from them? So we've seen three uh, characters so far. We looked at Joseph of Arimathea. Remember him? He was the member of the Sanhedrin who didn't go along with the Sanhedrin, railroading Jesus Christ to have him killed. He was a secret disciple of Christ. But at some point in time, he came out of the closet, requested permission to take the body of Jesus down from the cross, which he did, and buried the body of Jesus in his own tomb. We also looked at another Joseph nicknamed Barsabbas. This Joseph was the one who had pretty much followed Jesus from the time of Christ, the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry, all the way up to the time when Christ ascended into heaven before their watching eyes. And so he was one of two candidates nominated by the group of disciples to replace Judas as the 12th apostle. Now, he didn't get it. God passed him over for Matthias. But we looked at Judas's life, Barsabbas's life, for the characteristics and the actions of someone who was a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at probably the one that's most familiar to us, and that is Barnabas, another Joseph, actually. But Barnabas was that great missionary in the early church, that great encourager. In fact, that's what his name uh, actually means, son of encouragement. So with his words, Barnabas was sharing the gospel with lost people all over the place, but he was especially using his words to encourage, to come alongside believers and build them up, edify them, speak to them, speak for them in the ways that they needed it. And we looked at two examples of him really putting himself out to speak on behalf of Paul when he first came to Jerusalem and people didn't trust him. And then he put himself out for John Mark when Paul didn't trust him. So you saw characteristics from Barnabas that should be seen in in all of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ. And, And what we see from all three of these characters is that the strength of each of these disciples was tied directly to their exposure to Christ. So the more they were around him, Two of them directly, one of them indirectly. But the more they were around him or the truth about him, the more they lived for him, the better they lived for him, both in motivation and in practice as well. And so I'll put back up here for you again what we've put up the last three weeks, and that is what these three and what all of our candidates, our characters are showing us is that What they saw of Christ produced what they did for Christ because it caused what they were thinking of Christ. And that is something that you see as a common thread running through every disciple of Jesus Christ. The more we see, the more we do, because it's influencing what we think of Christ, okay? So, our fourth character is cut out of that very same mold. And we're going to see that this morning, characters, in fact, You're at Acts chapter 18. I want you to join me in the first three verses of Acts chapter 18, and we'll read about these characters characters today, okay? Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, 
born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. Paul came to Aquila and Priscilla. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. Okay, so today's characters, plural, not just one today, but this married couple, Aquila and Priscilla. Now, we're reading Luke's account here. He wrote the book of Acts, obviously. And just like Luke did with the last two characters, Barsabbas and Barnabas, he's doing the same with Priscilla and Aquila. He's giving us some biographical information about these two people individually and pretty much as, as a couple, as it turns out. So what does he tell us here about these two people? Well, first of all, he says Aquila was a Jew. And he's not meaning that Aquila was a Jew religiously or just religiously. He means ethnically. He, he has Abraham's blood running in his veins. You could trace his family line, his family tree, all the way back to Abraham. That's probably true of Priscilla, too. Because Jews rarely married another Gentile at this point in time. And Priscilla is a good Jewish name. So probably can say the same thing about Priscilla that said about Aquila. She was an ethnic Jew as well. Luke also tells us that Aquila was born in Pontus. Now, I didn't put a map up here for us this morning. You've got some in the back of your Bible probably. So this afternoon, go back and, and look at this so you can get your bearings straight. But to find Pontus, you start in Jerusalem and go straight north about 600 miles. You find the area of Galatia. And up in northeast Galatia, up near the top, is that area of, of Pontus. Today, on today's map, it's in Turkey. Okay, so the northern section of Turkey, that's where Aquila was born. Now, we know about this area of Pontus from another writer. When Peter wrote his first letter, right at the beginning of the letter, he said, I'm writing this to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, and then he listed several other places. The pilgrims of the dispersion. And he was talking about Jews who had been dispersed from the promised land out into other places, and Pontus, one of those places. Now, what we know is that if Aquila was born there, we're not talking about the dispersion that took place when Paul came to Jerusalem and went from house to house trying to catch Christians and have them arrested. If Aquila was born there, then, then Aquila was born there before that even happened. So these Jews in Pontus had been dispersed there for some other reason at some other time. And so you've probably got to go back six or 700 years to what we've talked about so much around here, and that's when the Assyrians attacked Israel, then the Babylonians attacked Judah, and survivors ran for their lives out into other countries. That's probably what had happened to um, Aquila's ancestors. They had fled from the Promised Land north, settled up there in the region of Pontus, and then six, seven hundred years later, Aquila, one of their descendants, is born there. Okay? That's probably the explanation for how he got there or how he, he started from there. Now, Priscilla, we don't know anything about. We don't know where she came from. We don't even know how she met her husband, Aquila. The only thing we know about her is what we know in association with Aquila. And Luke tells us here that they both came together from Italy to Corinth. That's the setting that I just read for you in verses 1 through 3. We don't know how or when they each got to Italy. We don't know if they came there. You know, Aquila came from Pontus to Italy. Priscilla came from somewhere else to Italy, and they met there. We don't know that. Did they both meet in Pontus and come to Italy, to Rome together? We don't know that. All we know is that they left Italy together as husband and wife, and we know why they left Italy together. That was they were kicked out because they were Jews. Now, why did that happen? What's the story behind that? Well, you've got the name of the emperor at that point in time. His name was Claudius, Claudius Caesar. You've probably heard that name before. Not as familiar as some of the other names, but you may have heard his name before. Well, why would he kick the Jews out of Rome? Well, there's lots of reasons for that, some very specific, some general. I mean, every emperor was worried about insurrections. 
We've talked about that on uh, Sunday mornings in Sunday school. Kevin's been going through the book of John and looking at Pilate as a a Roman governor and what he was on the alert for and and how the Jews played him and tried to get him to worry about an insurrection among the Jews and how that may have factored into some of Pilate's decisions. That was always going on with the emperors, okay? They were always worried that somebody was going to rise up from within the Roman Empire and there would be enough of them that they could cause so much trouble that maybe they would lose their power. They would lose their authority. Well, this particular emperor, Claudius, from what I read, was a particularly weak man and a particularly fearful man. That seemed to be on his mind maybe more than other emperors before him and after him. So that factored in some way here when he said, okay, all you Jews, get out. I don't want you here anymore. It's also true, constantly and generally speaking, that the Jews were always distrusted wherever they were because there seemed to be a lot of them wherever they were and they were in communities together. And so the emperors were always worried about these Jewish people because of the number of them. And they were usually disliked because they tended to be business people and they competed very well against the Gentile merchants. So there was always a little grumbling by the Gentile merchants about the Jewish people, which then stirred up trouble within the Roman Empire. That seemed to always be going on as well. There was another factor about Jewish people that never went over well in the Roman Empire, and that is the Roman emperors were worshipped as gods, except for by the Jews. The Jews refused to do that. That's idolatry to them. And so you've got the Gentiles, the, the Italians, you've got, you've got those living in Rome and outside of Rome in the Roman Empire. They're looking at Caesar as a god and they're burning incense on his behalf and, and before they do certain things, but the Jews would not participate. So that tended to irritate every emperor. But in Claudius's particular day, one historian tells us something that really played into this decision to kick the Jews out of Rome. And I quote, the Jews were in a state of constant tumult at the instigation of one Crestus. That sound familiar to you? Crestus? What have we talked about when you look at the Greek language? What is the word for Christ? Christos. And so Claudius is emperor of Rome. You've got this group of Jews, this community of Jews. There's always tumult. There, there's always a rucket ruckus going on. There's, there's always a, a, a riot or they're on the verge of a riot. Why? Because of somebody by the name of Christus. And it tells us that even though Paul hadn't been to Rome by this point in time, the gospel evidently had gotten there. The name of Jesus was there. The name of Jesus had gotten to the synagogues. And you know what happens when the name of Jesus comes into the Jewish synagogue? A fight breaks out. Because you'll have a few that will believe and consider to be Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, but the rest of the Jews are having nothing to do with it, and they end up butting heads. That seems to have been what was going on in Rome. So Claudius, fearful Claudius, paranoid Claudius, emperor wanting to protect the peace of his own community, his own empire, and and his own skin in the process, decides the easiest way to deal with these Jews is just to get rid of all of them. Kick them out. You're no longer welcome in Rome. Get out of here, okay? And so that's where Aquila and Priscilla came from when they got to Corinth. And that's why they left Rome to come to Corinth. They were some of those Jews in Rome, and they were some of those business people because we learned that their occupation was tent making. So they had been business people in Rome, and now they're they're kicked out because of who they are. Now, maybe the fact that they were tent makers, business people, is why they went to Rome originally. If you draw a line from Pontus all the way over to Rome, that's about 1,200 miles. Why would would Aquila leave his home and go all the way, 1,200 miles or so? That's like driving from here to uh, San Antonio, maybe, about that distance, Dallas, San Antonio. Okay, it's one thing to do it in a car. That's a hard trip. In that day, 1,200 miles, it meant going across water as well. Why go all the way over there? Rome is the capital of the Roman Empire. If, if you're going to be able to do business, if you think you've got a good chance to make some money, 
Where better to do it than there? I'm not saying for sure that's how they ended up there or, or Aquila ended up there, but it's very, very possible. And maybe when they got kicked out of Rome, why go to Corinth? Of all the places they could have gone, go back to Pontus or anywhere on the face of the planet, why go to Corinth? Well, Corinth, as we learned when we studied the first two letters that Paul wrote to them, Corinth was a thriving city in every way, no matter how you looked at it, educationally, <clears throat> culturally, uh, artistically, economically, Corinth was a thriving city as well. So what better place to go and do business? And add to that, Corinth had a synagogue. So there were Jews in Corinth as well. Maybe all of that factored into why Aquila and Priscilla ended up in Corinth. Now, we don't know if these two already believed in Jesus when they came to Corinth. Were they already believers in Rome? So when they, when they got to Corinth, they were believing in Jesus? We don't know that. Luke doesn't tell us anything about Paul leading them to faith. And Luke often does that. When Paul is responsible for sharing the gospel with someone and they believe, Luke often tells us that, that Paul was the instrument. And he doesn't when it comes to this couple. And when Luke says Paul found them, that word found means that he was looking for something and found them as the, the end result of his search. So some people think that Paul came to Corinth looking for Christian fellowship, heard about Aquila and Priscilla, that they're Christians, they're Jewish Christians, and so he sought them out and went and found them. That's what some people think that language means. But it doesn't mean that for sure. Paul could have just been looking for Jewish companionship. Where's, where's the group of Jews here in Corinth? Where are they? I, I want to find them because I'm Jewish and I want to be around them. And you add to it the fact that when Luke described Paul's decision to live with Aquila and Priscilla, what was the reason? It wasn't Christ. At least Luke doesn't say so. It wasn't Christ. It was business. They, they had business interests in common. They were tent makers. He was a tent maker, so they decided to live together. So there, there, there are arguments for Aquila and Priscilla already being believers, but there's also evidence that seems to say maybe they weren't when Paul met them, okay? We just don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is that Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months. He preached the gospel in the synagogue at first, then moved to a house next door to the synagogue, and he kept preaching the gospel there and teaching believers while making tents and living with Aquila and Priscilla. And when Paul left Corinth after 18 months, who do you think went with him? Look at verse 18 with me, if you will. Chapter 18, verse 18. Luke writes this. So Paul still remained in Corinth a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. So after 18 months, Paul leaves, and Aquila and Priscilla leave with him. So I would say, even if they didn't start there in Corinth at believers, they left as believers, and that's why they left with Paul. Now, somebody might argue with me, and they may say, well, not necessarily. They were all, they were all business people. They had been doing business together. They made money together. So maybe they left thinking, well, Paul's going to go somewhere else and make tents and make money. We'll just go with him somewhere else and make money making tents too. Maybe that was a possibility. But if someone was going to argue that with me, I would say, why was Paul leaving Corinth? Did Paul leave Corinth to go find better business opportunities somewhere else? No, he didn't. That never factored into Paul's travel decisions. Tent making was secondary to Paul. Tent making for Paul was just a side job to take pressure off the churches so that they didn't have to support him financially, at least not completely, themselves. Business did not set Paul's agenda. Ministry did. So for Aquila and Priscilla, there would have been no guarantee of income, business at all, definitely not any guarantee of getting wealthy somewhere else. For them, if they were leaving with Paul for that reason... It would have been a very unwise move financially. Been foolish on their part to do that. So I'm convinced they must have had a different reason for leaving with Paul. I'm convinced that it was their commitment to Christ and Paul's ministry for Christ. This couple 
This husband and wife wanted to keep enjoying and keep doing somewhere else what they had been doing and watching and participating in and enjoying in Corinth. They wanted to be a part of what Christ was doing around Paul wherever he was doing it. And that decision on their part came after 18 months of Paul living with them. Now, what would that have been like? You know, you, you make tents all day long with Paul. And then you sit down for dinner with Paul. And then after dinner, Paul's still there. What's going to be going on all that time? You're going to hear the word of God. You're going to be taught the word of God from someone sent out by Jesus Christ himself. Someone whose entire mission in life was to proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. And they lived with this man for 18 years. Even when he was going to to the synagogue and then to Justice's house right next to the synagogue teaching groups of people. I bet you Aquila and Priscilla were right there being taught that way in group settings, not even to mention what they got from him personally one-on-one every day. So these two, this couple is another illustration of what we said week after week after week. The strength of a disciple is tied directly to his or her exposure to Christ. The more you see of Christ, the more you want to follow him, the more you want to serve him. It impacts your life directly, and you see it with this couple. What they were seeing of Christ through Paul's constant teaching produced what they wanted to do for Christ because it was influencing what they were thinking of Christ. Christ deserves for every one of his people to be sold out for him. He deserves that. He deserves for all of his people to be all in, nothing held back. Christ deserves from all of his people for ministry for him to be at the top of our priority list. Everything else is secondary. That's what he deserves. But that's only going to happen when we are saturated with the truth about Jesus Christ. It's only going to happen when we get out of relationships that have nothing to do with Christ about the relationships. It's only going to happen when we separate ourselves from everything else that is distracting us that is not about Christ. It might be the television, it might be the internet, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, everything that's out there today that is bombarding us and, and trying to steal our attention to something other than Christ It will only happen when we cut ourselves off from all of that and focus our attention on Christ, on what's said about Christ. And just as the other three characters we've looked at, Aquila and Priscilla, are proof of that. Even while they were working, they're hearing about Christ. There's no question about that. Their days were were centered on Christ. They're sewing, I'm sure. They're, They're fixing leather all day long. But the conversation, it is about Jesus Christ. And that's what led them to leave Corinth with Paul marching out into the great unknown. Why would they do that? Because they wanted to be where Christ was the center. And it didn't matter what that required of them. And they knew they would have it with Paul. Paul is a man who's all about the Word of God. If they're with him, they're going to be all about the Word of God, which is all about Christ as well. And so I want to put one observation up here uh, right now. We'll get to three more at the end of all of this. But, but I want to put this observation up first for us because this is what we're seeing already with the life of Aquila and Priscilla. They thought, this is obvious to me, they thought the reward of their preoccupation, what's their preoccupation? Christ. So the reward of Christ was infinitely greater than the reward of their occupation, tent making. I will give up guaranteed income from tent making here in Corinth because going somewhere else is going to give me more in Christ. Seeing Christ, worshiping Christ, serving Christ. One is worth the trade to get the other one. Any risk that might be involved was worth that reward to Aquila and Priscilla. That's why they left Corinth. So, What then do we see of them after Corinth? Paul leaves, they leave. We'll go down to verse 19. So Acts chapter 18, verse 19, we're in the same spot. Let me read through verse 21. Acts 18, verse 19. And he, Paul, came to Ephesus and left them there. 
But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they, the Jews, asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Okay, so, so get the picture here concerning Aquila and Priscilla. They left Corinth with Paul, clearly to be with Paul. There's no doubt about that. We're going to leave Corinth and we're going to stay with Paul. That had to be on their mind. They left to work with Paul. They left to minister with Paul. And then he leaves them alone in a strange city. I mean, is that really what happened here? Well, how did they react to that? We'll look down at verse 24. Luke writes, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Okay, so so what's the point here with Aquila and Priscilla? They heard Apollos in the synagogue. That's where they heard him, right? Well, what were they doing in the synagogue? They're Christians. They're believing that Jesus is Messiah. And that's not a place, the synagogue was not a place of worship for Christians. They saw that back in Corinth. They were in the synagogue with Paul, and they all got run out of the synagogue when Paul starts preaching. And so now they're in Ephesus. Paul leaves because he's going to go to Jerusalem. They're still in Ephesus. Where did they go? Went to the synagogue. It seems strange because Jews at the synagogue are just going through their religious motions. They're reading the law each Sabbath, but they're just doing it so that they can maintain their whole system of works righteousness. Oh, we keep the law, we keep the traditions of the elders, and therefore we are righteous in God's sight. That's what went on in every synagogue. But remember what had happened at this synagogue when Paul was there? Look back at verse 19 again. Let me just remind you. He came to Ephesus and left them, Aquila and Priscilla there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent. Now, that's what happened when Paul had gone to this synagogue of Jews in Ephesus. What did Paul do there? It says he reasoned with the Jews, right? Which means what? Well, if you'll turn, flip back to chapter 17, very quickly, chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. When Paul was in Thessalonica, Luke records what he did there, and it's very interesting to compare it with Ephesus. So chapter 17, verse 2, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So, so what we're hearing is, Paul didn't vary the script very much. When he went into a town, he found the synagogue, he went into the synagogue, and he did the same thing. He took the Old Testament scriptures, which talk about the Christ. Whoever the Christ will be, whoever his identity is, this is what we know about him. He will suffer, he will die, he will rise from dead. Then Paul would say, consider Jesus of Nazareth. He suffered, he died, he rose from the dead. Therefore, the conclusion is what? He is the Christ. That was how Paul reasoned with the Jews everywhere he went. And evidently, when he did that in Ephesus, here, where we're talking about right now, there were some Jews, maybe many Jews in this particular synagogue, who had been so receptive to that reasoning that they asked him to stay longer so they could hear more, so that they could talk more, they could ask more questions, they could learn more. Now, Paul didn't stay. We've already read that a couple of times, but who did stay? Aquila and Priscilla. They did stay there. And it seems like that couple continued what Paul had been doing there before he left. I mean, there's no question they were active in that synagogue because they heard from Apollos in that synagogue. And they listened long enough, they heard him long enough 
to hear where he was right and also to hear where he was missing some doctrine as well. So they must have been going to that synagogue regularly if they heard that much from Apollos to be able to come to that conclusion. And the fact that they corrected Apollos shows how concerned they were, just like Paul was, how concerned they were for the Jews in that synagogue to be hearing the truth about Christ. They, they didn't want some com- someone coming in there representing Jesus Christ and only telling part of the story or, or telling some wrong parts about Jesus Christ. So when they heard Apollos with some holes in his doctrine, they wanted to help fix that for the sake of those Jews in that synagogue. But also the fact that they corrected him showed how concerned they were for the believers, the Christian Jews as well. Because here's Apollos. He is a Christian Jew as well. He's trying to minister for Christ. He's trying to minister to the lost and to believers. And Aquila and Priscilla could see he doesn't have the whole story. We want him to have the whole story. It's for his best to have this whole story. It's for the best of his ministry to have the whole story. And we're not just going to shoot him down in public. We're not going to stand up in the synagogue and say, wait, Apollos, you've got that wrong. No, 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 this is the truth. No, they didn't want to humiliate him. They didn't want to shame him. So they took him to the side and privately filled in the holes where he was missing something so that he could go back out in public and and his reputation hasn't been harmed at all. His pride won't be affected out there in public at all, and he will have even a stronger influence, a stronger ministry among lost Jews and among believing Jews as well. I can also tell you almost for sure, if you'll go a little bit further, chapter um, 18, and look at verse 27. Chapter 18, verse 27. Still talking about Apollos here. And it says, and when he, Apollos, desired to cross to Achaia, from Ephesus to Achaia, the brethren wrote exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. I have no doubt Aquila and Priscilla were part of that group of brethren who wrote the letter of reference for Apollos. He's going from Ephesus over to Achaia. He's going to go in. He's going to try to get in with the believers saying, I'm a believer too, and I'm a teacher. Well, they don't know him from Adam. Would they trust him? Well, they would if the believers from Ephesus had commended him. If they had wrote a letter of reference and Aquila and Priscilla were pretty active in that synagogue of Jews and Jewish believers in Ephesus. So I think they were involved as part of that as well. And so all of that shows us what we can know about Aquila and Priscilla when they were in Corinth and when they were in Ephesus. Now, Paul returned to Ephesus after he had left and gone to Jerusalem. He returned to Ephesus and stayed for three years, but Luke doesn't say any more about Aquila and Priscilla after this. This is where he ends his biographical record of that particular couple. So is that the end of the story for this disciple couple, if we want to call them that? Well, maybe it's the end as far as Luke is concerned, but not from Paul. Now, remember our history that we've learned from our studies here on Sunday morning. Paul wrote his first letter to Corinth after he came back to Ephesus here. And he probably wrote it early in his time. So he comes back, stays there for three years. He wrote to Corinth early in that three-year period. And I want you to notice a comment that he made at the end of that first letter to the Corinthians. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Luke has finished talking about Aquila and Priscilla, but Paul isn't, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and I want you to look at verse 19. Again, this is Paul writing from Ephesus, where we last saw Aquila and Priscilla. He's writing to Corinth, where he first met Aquila and Priscilla. They stayed with him there for 18 months, okay? So the people in Corinth know Aquila and Priscilla. This is what Paul says about them in Ephesus. He says, the churches of Asia, Ephesus being one of them, the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord. That makes sense because they would have known many of them with the church 
that is in their house. Paul's writing from Ephesus. Aquila and Priscilla are still there in Ephesus with him. He's writing a letter to the Corinthians where he and Aquila and Priscilla had been right before they came to Ephesus. They had been there for 18 months, so the people there know Aquila and Priscilla. But when Paul describes them and what they're still doing in Ephesus, yeah, they, they love the people in Corinth, they send their greetings, but also they've got a church meeting in their house. So it means this couple didn't just disappear in Ephesus. They didn't disappear from Ephesus. I think we can also surmise that they weren't just casual believers there in Ephesus. They weren't just showing up on the Lord's Day and checking the box and going back home and, and doing their thing. I think we see much more of that, right? They, they had made Christ the center of their lives, so much so that they made their home a center for other people to make Christ the center of their lives. They, they opened the doors to their home so other believers could come in and be Christ-centered with them. Other believers could come in and learn. Other believers could come in and worship. Other believers could come in and serve. Other believers could come in and receive benevolence and give benevolence. So it's not just Aquila and Priscilla being Christians in Ephesus. It's Aquila and Priscilla trying to lead the believers in Ephesus. They're in the middle of everything. They, they are the middle of everything. They are the center of worship for Jesus Christ, and they chose to do that themselves. It's not like it was forced on them in any way, but this is what they're doing in Ephesus, even though Luke's not talking about them anymore. They're still worth talking about. They're still demonstrating the strength of their discipleship by throwing open the doors to their house and saying, believers, come into our house. Come here. We will support you. We will assist you. We will, we will be a place for learning and worship and service to go on. That's while they were still in Ephesus. This is not the only place we keep hearing about them. Turn back to the left to Romans chapter 16, if you will. Romans <clears throat> chapter 16. So you've got this couple obviously wanting to be used for Jesus to receive everything that he can from all of his people in any given particular area. They're in Ephesus doing it. Paul tells the Corinthians about it. This is, this is, what, this is what Aquila and Priscilla are still doing in, in Ephesus. Now you get to this letter to the Roman church and look at chapter 16 and verse 3. Paul writing to the Roman believers says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Now, this isn't the same place as when he was writing to the Corinthians. I mean, you, you remember the, the, the setting or the the the, the timeline of events. Paul wrote to the Roman church not long after writing his second letter to Corinth, maybe just a couple of years after that first one. And by that time, who's in Rome? Evidently Aquila and Priscilla. They had left Ephesus. Now they're in Rome. Now, you know, wait a second. Wait, wait. This whole story started with them in Rome, right? They were in Rome, and then Claudius decided, I'm kicking all the Jews out, so Aquila and Priscilla had to leave Rome because of danger. They're Jews. If they stay there, that's going to be trouble. That's when they ran to Corinth. And now we find them, after going on to Ephesus, they go back to Rome? Wouldn't that be crazy? Uh, well, no, because by that point in time, Claudius was no longer ruling in Rome. So everything's okay now, right? Guess who came on the scene as emperor after Claudius? You know a name? Nero. Know that name? He was right in line right after Claudius. And what do we know about life under Nero? We know it was far more dangerous to be a Christian under Nero's reign than it was to be a Jew under Claudius's reign. Now, it wasn't that way from the very beginning of Nero's reign. That got worse as time went on. But still, this is the, the new emperor. It's not like things have changed for the better. It's not like the new emperor says, I love Christianity. Come here and, and just worship however you want to. That was not going on. And this is the place and the time when Aquila and Priscilla decide we're going back 
to Rome. And they didn't just go back there. They didn't just return. They didn't say, well, we made a lot of money back in Rome. Let's go back to Rome. We'll sneak in under the radar. We'll, we'll fly in at night. We'll set up business under different names. We'll wear disguises. And we'll just lay low as Christians. Nobody really needs to know that about us, do they? No. What's Paul saying about them? When he says, oh, the, the, greet the church that's meeting in their house there in Rome. These, these people are being publicly Christian in Rome. The place they left, then went back to, they are being publicly Christian. Evidently, they found the believers in Rome. They hosted a congregation of believers in their own house, just like they had done in Ephesus. And you want to talk about a target for persecution? If, if a ruler hates Christians and he wants to get rid of them, where is he going to go looking for them to start with? Wherever they meet. You hear stories of persecution from all over the world, and the stories are, our, our pastor was murdered. Our, our church building was burned down while we were meeting in it. Well, of course, because you know when they're all going to be gathered together, you can wipe them all out at one time, find where they meet. Aquila and Priscilla go back to Rome, and they decide, meet here. Come to us. We will open our doors. You come meet in our house. Wow. Risky. At the very least, risky, right? But evidently, this couple was okay with that. What they're showing in each of these places is that they just wanted to be where Christ was the center. And maybe that's not the way to say it. Maybe the way I should have said it is they wanted to make Christ the center, not just for themselves, but for all of God's people. Come here, come to us. We center on Christ here, come to us, and you can center on Christ here as well. And maybe they went back to Rome specifically for that reason. Maybe they went back to Rome just to serve Christ by providing a place to unify his people and to edify his people using their own home to do it. Again, risky, of course, but clearly the reward was much greater than the risk to this disciple couple. And that must have been their mindset all along. Because what else did Paul say about them here in Romans chapter 16? What else did he say? Uh, what verses were that? Was that? Uh, verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my own life. When Paul thinks about this couple, he says, they risked their necks for my, lives, my life. I don't know exactly when he's talking about, probably Corinth, when he got run out of the synagogue in Corinth. And then, you know, there was a big uproar months and months and months after that where the Jews were all upset about him and they were trying to, to get to him. Who was he living with? With Aquila and Priscilla. They're harboring Paul. They're protecting Paul. And because of their protection of Paul, Paul got to keep going out to the Gentile churches, preaching the gospel and edifying the churches. And so all the churches were thankful for this couple, not just Paul, but they were thankful because this couple was not afraid to risk their necks to serve Christ by serving his people. This was their MO. So again, keep this in perspective. We look at people like this and we tend to put them in the category of Paul and Barnabas and Timothy. These, these men who were called by Christ for full-time Christian ministry. You know, Paul, get out on the road. Barnabas, get out on the road. Holy Spirit sent Barnabas out with Paul to preach the gospel all over the place. They took in Timothy and Timothy travels with them, and that's all they do. They, they are missionaries, and they are pastors, all wrapped into one, full-time. But that's not Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla just lived in a community. They, they lived there, they stayed there, they worked there, and they used what they had for Christ and his church wherever they were. And you think it stopped here? Let me show you one more place. Go to 2 Timothy with me very quickly. 2 Timothy. I'll show you something we saw when we were studying through this letter <clears throat> not long ago on Wednesday nights. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 19. So Paul here is in a dungeon in Rome near the end of his life. He knows it. No more writings of Paul after this. We think he was executed maybe within months of this letter. He's obviously writing this letter to Timothy. Timothy is back in Ephesus, leading the churches in Asia from Ephesus. So Timothy kind of took Paul's place there. He's, he's the new head honcho there in Ephesus. Paul's writing to Timothy right near the end of Paul's life, and what does he say? Greet Prisca 
and Aquila, Priscilla. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. So they're not in Rome anymore. Now they're back in Ephesus. And evidently, they are so well-known in Ephesus that Timothy will know exactly who Paul's talking about. And Timothy will see them to talk to them. And so Paul is implying to us here that Aquila and Priscilla just went back to Ephesus and doing the same thing they were doing everywhere else. Corinth, Ephesus, Rome, back to Ephesus. They're in the middle of it. Wherever the church was, it's where they wanted to be. Wherever they could serve the church, it's where they wanted to be. They wanted to be at the place where Christ was the focus. Christ was the center. Where can we be where he's being given what he deserves and where we can help people give him what he deserves? And even at the end of Paul's life, when he's going off the scene, they're still doing what they've always been doing. So their home was wherever Christ was the center. They, they made it that way. They made that choice. They, they took actions to get as close to the center of his worship as possible, even doing it in their own home. And I want to leave you with just a couple other observations about their life, starting with the one that we've talked about each week with every one of these biblical characters. They show us, once again, that discipleship is tied directly to exposure to Christ. Their lives are living proof of this, right? So 18 months in Corinth, living with Paul, working with Paul, eating with Paul, learning from Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Then more of the same, when Paul came back to Ephesus, before they left to go to Rome, there was another period of time where I'm sure they were working with Paul, making tents, and Paul is teaching them more and more and more. And then we find them with Timothy in Ephesus. Timothy, trained by Paul, gifted by the Holy Spirit to do what? To preach the truth, to, to give out the word of God about Jesus Christ. That's what Timothy's gifting was. So here they are in the presence of Timothy back in Ephesus. I would safely say these two got more than a seminary education in their lifetime. <clears throat> you look at the people that were teaching them on a constant basis about the way of the Lord, the way the Lord is using his son, Jesus Christ, for his people. They were learning so much, and it's obvious in their actions. Again, think about Apollos and their interaction with Apollos. Here's a man who, when he came to Ephesus and they first met him, he was already mighty in the Scriptures. He was already teaching the things of the Lord accurately. He was doing it eloquently. He was doing it passionately. Yet Aquila and Priscilla were able to teach him more. More than he already knew. And how were they able to do that? Well, simple. Because they chose to put themselves in spots where Christ was being taught. Christ was being taught by someone sent out by Christ to do that. They kept putting themselves there. They were seeing Christ constantly. And they were seeing Christ accurately presented through the apostles' teaching and the apostles' experience with Christ himself. They knew what Christ deserved. They knew what Christ wanted. They knew what glorifies Christ. And they knew what would give him the most pleasure because they knew him. They had heard from Christ. They had heard his word from his servants because they kept putting themselves in that spot over and over and over again. Folks, discipleship only happens with Christ. It is impossible to be a disciple of Christ without being near Christ. We won't, we can't follow him if we're not exposed to him. The more we see him, the more we want to serve him, and the better we're equipped to serve him. It's just a simple, straightforward, undeniable, crucial formula. The question is, are you following it like Aquila and Priscilla did? Or are you wasting time where Christ is not the center of what's going on there? I'm not saying it's inherently evil. I'm not saying we're involved in immoral things. But the more things we're involved in where Christ is not the center, then the less we're being exposed to Christ and the less we're going to follow him as disciples as we should. Simple, straightforward formula. Are we doing it? Discipleship was tied directly to their exposure to Christ. Here's another thing that we observe, and we've been talking about this all morning. They did discipleship as a couple. Aquila and Priscilla, as a married couple, did discipleship to Jesus Christ as a couple. 
There are so many Christian, at least professing Christian couples, who struggle because they each live their own lives separately. They have separate occupations, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing evil about it, but it is what it is. Separate occupations and separate preoccupations. Yeah, they live under the same roof. They may sleep in the same bed. They show up at the kids' activities together, but there's no real oneness in their relationship. The only oneness, oftentimes, is in the fact that they are together, alike, spiritually cold. And often when the kids grow up and leave the home, what happens? The absence of that oneness becomes painfully obvious. They don't do anything together because they've no longer got anything in common. In fact, they never really did because they never lived life in common on purpose. They didn't do it. And that's sad for them, no question. It's really sad for their kids. It's sad for the church. Mostly it's sad for Christ. By contrast, we've got Aquila and Priscilla, right? They are always mentioned together. You never find one of these two mentioned without the other. They're always mentioned together. They lived together, they moved together, they worked together, they served together, they worshiped together, they risked their necks together, they opened their home together. Aquila and Priscilla are about as close to the model that God created in Adam and Eve as you can get for sinners. I'm not saying they were perfect, because there are no perfect saints, okay? No perfect human beings. But when you look at the model of God's creation of Adam and Eve and what he meant for them together, this couple we're looking at this morning is about as close as you're going to see in Scripture, and I would say in life in general. God made Adam. God gave Adam the first responsibility to serve him. Then he made Eve to come alongside and help Adam in that role that God had given to Adam. He equipped Eve to do with Adam what Adam couldn't do alone, so together they could serve God, give God the glory that he deserves, and enjoy the blessings that God had promised for those who serve him. And that's what we see from Aquila and Priscilla, right? I mean, from first to last, all the scriptures we've looked at, this is what we're seeing out of this couple. Neither Luke nor Paul point to one of them without the other one. It's always Aquila and Priscilla together in Christian life, together in discipleship. Their lives were one unified life of discipleship and fellowship and partnership. And surely, that's one of the things that made them so strong spiritually made them so effective in serving the Lord, and I would guess made them so happy individually as well as as a couple. Couples, I speak to you. Theirs is an imperfect model that will test our relationships. Let me ask you this question. If someone was going to describe what they see of your life, would they think of you? Would they think of who you are? Would they think of what you do with your spouse? or on your own. Oh, I know so-and-so. He does this. He is this. He goes there. This is what he's involved in. Or is the description of he and his wife and what they're involved in? If they were thinking of your discipleship, and by that I mean your connection to Christ, what they've watched you, how they've watched you pursue Christ and serve Christ, do they notice you doing that alone or doing it with your spouse? If the answer is alone, well, that's wrong. And again, it's not only costing you, it's costing your spouse, it's costing your kids, it's costing the church, and mostly it's costing Christ because God set it up where Christ is most glorified as husband and wife do it together as one. So it's wrong. Fixing it starts with exposing yourself to Christ again. And doing it not just individually, but doing it together as a couple. Seeing his glory together, seeing what he deserves together, seeing how to serve him together, just like Aquila and Priscilla were doing on a daily basis. So get your Bible out together, sit under preaching together, sit under teaching together, and then go out to serve Christ together. Here's the last one I'll give you. We'll end with this one. There's much more we can talk about. When you look at Aquila and Priscilla, their priorities were determined by the church. Okay, So when they were with Paul in Corinth, then from Corinth on after that, where they went, how long they stayed there, when they left, 
where they went next, what they did while they were in each place, all of that was determined by opportunities to serve Christ by serving his people. That's their MO, wherever they travel and why they travel. How can we serve Christ by serving his people? Again, these were lay servants, as we say, lay people, not full-time Christian servants or paid servants. This was not their occupation. They were lay servants. Their occupation was tent-making. Pretty much everywhere they went, that's what they did to support themselves and make money. But tent-making was not their priority. Serving the church was. That's what they were all about. That's how they decided when they needed to leave a place and where to go next. I mean, why leave Corinth when the word of God says many Corinthians were believing there and the hostility around Paul had died down there near the end? Well, because they saw an opportunity to serve the church with Paul somewhere else, somewhere like Ephesus. That's why they left there. And that's probably why they decided to leave a thriving ministry in Ephesus to return to Rome. And it's maybe why they returned to Ephesus from Rome after Paul left there, all to help Timothy with the church. It's why they had the church in their house, wherever they went. Obviously, it wasn't enough for these two believers just to be a part of the church. Christ was the center of their world, and they wanted the same thing for all believers. So they opened their home, they used their home as a place where Christ-centeredness could be fostered. So in their home, on a regular basis, there was teaching, there was prayer, there was singing, there was the Lord's Supper, there was fellowship, there was believers serving believers, benevolence was going on. It was like a greenhouse where Christ-focus would germinate and grow like like a beautiful plant all in their home. And when they saw an opportunity to do that somewhere else, they did it. They maybe even moved there to do it. That that was usually what was behind them, moving from one place to another. No matter their occupation, their preoccupation was Christ and his church. They were all about active immersion with believers, participation with believers, support of believers, the well-being of believers, the growth of the church, the witness of the church. Their thought was, where can we do that? How can we do that? And everything else for them was secondary. There were other things going on in their life. They are making tents, but it's secondary. It's not primary. It's not their priority. So questions for us. What is priority to you, and what is secondary? We could probably answer that for each other to some degree because we watch each other, but it's your heart with the Lord. What is priority for you? And what is secondary? What have you done in life because of the church? What have you changed for the church? What have you you turned down in your life based on the church? What have you planned in light of the church? What have you done just to be an active part of the church? What have you done just to help the church? What have you done to protect the church? Your answers to those questions will be tied directly to your exposure to Christ. I guarantee you. The more we see of him, the more he will become the center of our world. And then what's most important to him, his people, the bride of Christ, the church, that will become, they will become our highest priority too. So my exhortation is this. Let's learn from Aquila and Priscilla how to make Christ the center of our lives on purpose. He deserves that, doesn't he? Let's learn from them and do it. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for what you did in the lives of these two people, but especially their their marriage, their relationship with each other, because you can't look at them separately. Seems like once they were became believers, pretty much everything they did, they did together, but they did it for Christ. They did it because of Christ. They did it in the church. They did it for the church. Man, that all of us would get there. All of us individually would be there, and then all of us who are married, that 
That's what we would be all about. Husband and wife, wife and husband. Their lives intertwined, cannot be separated. That one is all about Christ, the other is all about Christ. One is wrapped up in serving the church, the other is wrapped up in serving the church, and they're doing it together. One leading, the other one supporting, but together, fellowship, partnership, oneness, unity, all for Christ, because of him, for his benefit, for his reputation, for his bride. Oh, that we were all there. I think, Father, it's safe to say we're not all there. We're not completely there. Even those that are seem to be thriving in that area, not perfected yet. So there's growth for all of us in this area. And we're learning week by week from you, Lord, that, that this is tied to our exposure to Jesus. The more we're looking at Jesus, the more we're going to want to look at Jesus. The more we're going to want to follow him and do things his way and, and do things for him and And what's important to him will be important to us. What is secondary to him is secondary to us. It can't be helped when your Holy Spirit is in someone and we're looking at Jesus. That's got to come out. So, Father, the the prayer is very simple. If we're not looking at Jesus the way we ought to, if if we're distracted, if, if, if we're choosing things, people, hobbies, experiences, uh, uses of our time that are, that are not Christ-centered, expose that in us. Show us. Make us see, man, this is, this is just not right. This is weak. This is, this is costing you. It's costing your family. It's costing the church family. It's costing Christ glory that he deserves. Expose that in us. Turn us around. Bring us to repentance. Fixate our, our attention on Christ once again. Draw us to the word so that we're reading all the time. Anytime the word is being taught, anytime the word is being preached, push us there. Don't let us hide behind excuses any longer. Don't let us settle for the least we have to do when there's so much we, that's available to us that is all about Christ. Father, turn us around. Increase, do what it takes for our exposure to your son to, to be increased to a level where it's never been before. And then we're sure, we are very confident that the results will follow. These, these biblical characters, these pictures of faith, pictures of discipleship, probably can be taken of us sometime soon. These same characteristics will show up in our lives, our desires, our words, our actions, so that we're just all about the body of Christ because we're all about Christ. That's what we want. Help us, Father, is our prayer. And I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.